Can I just welcome you this morning as well? We've done that, have we? We have said welcome to everybody. Welcome, 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 welcome. If this is your first time at Freedom Church, we are so pleased you're able to join us. Some friends from Ukraine here for the first time as well. Wonderful. And um, it's, uh, it's great just to, to come together to, to honor God. So we're, we are coming um, to first, or turning to 1 Corinthians once again, in fact, for the last time. And, and really during this week, I have been wondering how to finish this series off entitled Together. And together we've been looking what it means for us to come and worship God together based on 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through to, to chapter 14. And then I read the first line of chapter 15, which says, let me now remind you of the good news I preach. And I thought, that's it. Reaffirming the foundations of why we even come to church in the first place. But before we get there, it's just worth summarizing what Paul's main teaching points have been, have been as we've been looking at it over the last wee while. And, and, and there there's been some great advice about being together in worship and what that looks like. It's, it's contained some, some very beautiful, some more complicated, and actually some rather controversial passages as well. But at its very basic, it's, first of all, it, it talks, it's told us how all spiritual gifts come from the Holy Spirit for building up of the church. You remember that? It's also said how the church is a body, each part is needed, and each part needs the other. Thirdly, without love, gifts are useless. Fourthly, prophecy is a gift to be particularly desired, it says in chapter 14, because it builds up believers. In fact, it makes the gospel clear to unbelievers. And then fifthly, Church meetings should be varied and they should be passionate, but also orderly, reflecting the very character of God. And each, each of these points should make us, I think, thrilled to be in church. And at the same time, they should also be a challenge to us. You see, Jesus, Jesus is passionate for his body, the church. And each one of us should want to build up his church with the gifts that he has given us. So it should be no surprise to us that, it, that he is calling us to grow in maturity, in commitment, and in service. But none of these things are possible unless we hold on to the truth of the gospel, which is why Paul writes these words in that very next chapter. Let's read the first two, the first two verses begin. Let me, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. Stop there for a moment. It's very hard to, to dispute the reality of Jesus' death. The truth is that there are many historical books and writings that back up the facts recorded in the Bible that a man called Jesus died on the cross. However, 
It's the claims that follow Jesus' death that have caused so many arguments down through the years. So it's very interesting that having spent a significant amount of time instructing the church on orderly worship, Paul immediately follows this up by grounding everything that he has said with the gospel, and in particular, an emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus. See, I don't think you can worship God in a way that truly honors him if you do not understand the importance of the gospel and the truth of the resurrection. And Paul wants to remind the Christians here in verse 1, that the message that he preached from the very beginning has not changed, and he tells them to hold firmly to it because it is the good news of the gospel that is foundational and actually fundamental for salvation. In fact, it is so essential that Paul actually bookmarks his teaching on the resurrection with a call to, to hold firmly to its truth in verse 2, and then to stand firm in the truth in verse 58, the gospel is the solid foundation on which we must firmly stand on and from which we must never retreat. So Paul spells it out so clearly. Let's read verse 3. I pass on to you what was most important and what has also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. Then, sorry, he was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later on by the apostles. Last of all, as though I was born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all of the apostles. In fact, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me, and not without results, for I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it is not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach, for we all preach the same message you have already believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how could some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The gospel is about a person. It's about Jesus Christ, God's promised, all 
powerful, restoring king. He is the center subject of the gospel. And we, we can get co- so caught up in so many different things, and whether that be church or work or our home life or all the different things that invade our lives. And listen, it's not that these things aren't important. Of course, they are. It's just that in comparison, some things are so much more important. So Paul says in verse 3, Christ died for our sins. Really important. Verse 4a, he was buried. Really important. Verse 4b, he was raised from the dead on the third day. And then verse 5 to 7, he says, he is alive. And there are so many witnesses to prove it. And Paul is writing here because there are some people in the Corinthian church who were saying, look, there's no, there's no such thing as, as the resurrection of the dead. But Paul is emphatic. Christ's resurrection is the core part of the gospel. And his absolute confidence is based on two facts. Firstly, it took place according to to the scriptures. It's all been spoken about and prophesied long before it ever happened. It was predicted in the Old Testament. Read read Isaiah 53, verses 10 to 12. Read it a bit later on. Let me read another passage to you. Psalm 16, verses 10 to 11. It says, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay, You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasure at your right hand. So as Paul says, the first thing, I'm confident of the resurrection. Why? Because the scripture points towards us. But secondly, it was witnessed by hundreds of people, verses 5 to 7. As Corinthians are actually reading this letter, okay, they're sitting reading it there, they, there, there was at least probably 250, maybe 300 people, can't be sure, plus the apostles, according to Paul, and oh, sorry, including Paul, who's later added to the apostolic number, who are still alive in that moment, and they have seen the risen Jesus. There is no doubt in Paul's mind that Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, it's this message of the gospel. It is gospel grace that just changes everything. It transformed Paul from a persecutor to a preacher. And listen, the gospel is still transforming lives today. We've heard already a testimony of, of, uh, already from one of our guys here. This, I think on the first night at New Day, there were 70 other young people who give their life to Jesus. And that was just day one. So what is the gospel? Well, it means good news. At its very simplest, it's the message of Christ's death in our place for our sins It's his burial, it's his resurrection, and as I said before, this changes absolutely everything. He is able to save all who trust in him, but the gospel is about more than just simply being forgiven. The gospel is a complete reversal of both the natural tendency of the human heart. It stands in in contrast to all all, all other world religions. See, all world religions apart from the gospel, say that salvation comes from our own righteousness. 
So you'll have heard people say, I just need to try a bit harder, or if I'm just, if I'm good enough, perhaps God will, it'll make, maybe make God happy one day. But listen, that's not the gospel. The gospel says salvation is all about receiving the free gift of Christ's righteousness, even though you did nothing to deserve it. The gospel reveals a righteousness that comes by faith. It's the gospel of God. It originates with God. This is not human invention. It's the gospel of Jesus because Jesus is at the very, is, is the because Jesus is the center of this. He's our savior. In Romans chapter 1, also here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, Paul also calls it my gospel. This was personal to Paul, and it needs to be personal to you. See, the truth is that there are a few things in the Bible that, that raise emotions like the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For some, it is life-changing. For other people, it's, well, it's sheer stupidity. You can talk about God and spirituality, but once you mention the cross of Jesus Christ, you are nearly always going to get a reaction. But the cross is the greatest truth of the Bible. Jesus died for your sins. This is how 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it. He says, For our sakes he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is great news. But it's also really challenging. And, and so many people find the gospel shameful and offensive and there are many reasons why, but I think the four main ones are these. Because the gospel says salvation is undeserved, it, it offends moral people who think that their goodness means they don't need saving. But you need to be saved. And because the gospel says we are all sinners, it offends the popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity. But the Bible tells us we have all sinned. We've all fallen way short of God's standard. Because the Bible says only Jesus can save, it offends those who think that all spiritual paths lead to the same place. Listen, they don't. Because the gospel says the road to glory is one of suffering and sacrifice. It offends those who want following Jesus to be easy and to be comfortable. Listen, it's not. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul tells us, he says, For I am not ashamed of the good news about Jesus. And then he goes on to tell us why. He says, It is the power of God of God at work saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. And, and Paul explains that even though the gospel can clearly cause events, you must never, you must never be ashamed of it. Some reasons. Firstly, it is the gospel of Christ. The message of the gospel comes with the greatest authority of all. It is from and is about the very Son of God. How could anyone be ashamed of such a message that comes from God and that it's centered in his Son, Jesus Christ? Secondly, it is the power of God. 
No wonder Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. He was bringing a message that had power to change lives and into every situation and into every culture. He'd seen it work in the wicked city of Ephesus. He'd seen it working here in, in, in Corinth. And he was confident that it would work anywhere. It had transformed his own life and he knew it could transform the life of others. Thirdly, the result of the gospel is salvation. It is this good news that saves you, verse 2. The word salvation carried a tremendous meaning in Paul's day. Its basic meaning is deliverance. And it could refer to both personal, but also national deliverance. So, so what Paul is saying is that the gospel delivers sinners from the power and from the penalty of sin and death. And, and salvation is a, is a major theme that runs throughout all of the Bible, and rightly so, because it's the greatest need of the human race. Men and women need to be saved. There is only one way through faith in Jesus Christ as proclaimed through the gospel. You see, the gospel does not come with power. It is power. It is the power of God in verbal form, and it has the power to change and to transform and to give life to people. It does what no other power on earth can do. It saves you. And fourthly, it is for everyone who believes. This is not an exclusive message for certain people only. It is for all people because everyone needs to be saved. The gospel came to the Jews first through Jesus' earthly ministry and, the, and through the early apostles, but it, it, it was never exclusively for the Jews it is for all people. It is faith in Jesus that saves sinners. And this power goes to work in anyone and to everyone who believes. God does not ask people to behave in order to be saved, but to believe. And the Bible is very explicit. The only way to receive the gospel and its saving power is through faith. So how do we apply that to our lives? Just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you have living faith. Being an active church member or trying hard to be good is just not going to work. Religion and self-effort will lead to empty faith. It leads to hypocrisy. It leads to judgment. And this, you, need, you need to examine your heart. And Paul's conclusion, everyone needs saving. Whether you feel morally good or morally undeserving, you need to receive God's righteousness. The answer, no matter who you are, is Jesus. And as you put your trust in him, believing that he died and rose again and allow him to be Lord of your life, he will do what religion cannot do. He will change your heart by his spirit. This is the gospel and Jesus is your hope for now and for all of eternity. And listen, the gospel is just 
radical. You're justified by faith, not by works. God's invitation to you to come into his family is undeserved and it's freely given. Your record is wiped clean of your sin and it's filled with Christ's perfect righteousness. The glorious truth is that by faith, your sins have been forgiven. They've been covered over. They're not calculated anymore. Your debt has been cleared, but not just to zero. You've been credited with even more. You're credited with the righteousness of Christ. Secondly, you're justified by grace, not by laws. You do not earn, nor do you deserve God's forgiveness. God saved you when you believed in his glorious promise, not because you obeyed certain laws or did certain things. All that law does is reveal the problem. Jesus is the only solution. So it's not faith plus obedience or faith plus religion that's going to equal you being right with God. No, it is by grace alone. Nothing else. Christ alone. Thirdly, you're justified by resurrection power, not by human effort. Listen, God's power saves you, and the resurrection of Jesus is proof that sinners can be justified. And the key, of course, if you believe. It's only those who believe in Jesus Christ. To believe is to look at what God has said and to let his word define reality for you. It's to trust and to live by what he has promised. It's, it's taking him at his word, even when, when feelings or our popular opinion seems to be contradicting his promises. You need to realize that God does not fit into your nice little framework or into your little agenda or even into your time scale, but God can be trusted. So when he says, you are justified, you are saved, you're rescued by faith in Jesus Christ who died for you and rose again, you can rely on him. And remember, you're not just saved by grace, but you live and you walk by grace. And, but true grace is never excuse to sin. In fact, it's the the very opposite. Grace always brings you to a place of repentance. And repentance begins with an attitude of brokenness over your sin. But true repentance will be followed by, by an earnest desire, by a sincere effort to put away the sin that you have repented of. And as you mourn over your sin, against an infinite, against a holy God, you will find peace with God through grace and, and, and hope and, and the promise that, that God will not despise the broken and the contrite heart. Psalm 51 verse 17. But repentance is not just about dealing with sin through the cleansing blood of Jesus. 
It's about putting on Christ-like virtues that are missing in your life through the Holy Spirit. Now, I cannot speak for anybody else but myself, but I often find that I fail in this area just as, just as much as I succeed. But when we fail it, it should bring us back to a, a broken and to a contrite heart that mourns over sin. Brokenness and repentance are just marks of a growing Christian and a prayerful Christian. And the wonderful news is that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for all your sins. All of them. The big sins, the little sins, the sins that you're painfully conscious of, the ones that you aren't even aware of. As the whole old hymn says, my sin not in part but in whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Make repentance a regular part of your time in God's presence. Don't rush. Don't rush it. Allow the Holy Spirit to shine the light of God's word to your heart. Living with unrepented sin or unforgiveness or unbelief or, or selfish desires will destroy your relationship with God and with others. And you'll become powerless and ineffective for Jesus this is why we continually need to remind ourselves of the gospel every single day. Because as we do, over time, we are being transformed gradually and supernaturally into the image of Jesus Christ. It's time for men and women of faith to stand up in the power of the Holy Spirit and prayerfully seek God to boldly declare the truth of the gospel and the risen Jesus without compromises. And we are living in dark, difficult, and ungodly times. You, you know that as well as I do. And there's an enemy out there who wants to steal the treasure from God's people. And we must fight the enemy. Of course, this is not physical fight. It's spiritual warfare. And we, therefore, use spiritual, um, spiritual weapons, the word of God and prayer. And we do it together. That's what the last few weeks or months has been about, doing it together. But we must depend on the Holy Spirit to give us the power that we need. Satan wants to rob Christians of faith and the distinctive values of the gospel. And if we let him, he will cripple our ministry. It's very sad to hear people say, it, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you live right. What you believe determines how you behave. Wrong belief ultimately leads to a wrong life. The truth is, the local church is only ever one generation away from extinction. And it's not surprising that Satan particularly targets our young people, seeking to, to get them away from their faith. That's why events like New Day and other things around this nation are so important that our teenagers, that our young people are just exposed to the wonder of the gospel. They come together to worship the one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So like Paul, we need to truly believe that the one thing that is worth really fighting for is the faith of 
the gospel. The divine truth that is given to the church, the word of God, and in particular the teaching of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We must declare Christ's death and resurrection. Or as Paul says elsewhere, I will only preach Christ and him crucified. It's so important that the church has a gospel-centered teaching ministry so that each generation of believers will know and, and just appreciate biblical, godly truth. We must be pointing people to Jesus because more than anything else, our nation needs an encounter with him. We need another mighty move of God in our nation, do we not? I know during this week, Ruth and others have been praying down at the Commonwealth Games, praying for the nations, praying for God to do some stuff down there, and having a wonderful time. Um, listen, our churches and our nations needs to be revived again. But that will only happen if we hold firm to the word of God. We do not compromise on the word of God or the gospel or the truth. That we stand on the foundation. Listen, whatever else we do, no matter how gifted you are, no matter how, whatever amazing gift. And listen, we want to see God's gifts used within our church. But listen, if we are not on the solid foundation of the gospel, we might as well close up and go home. Because we've got nothing to offer anybody. Just stand with me. Let's pray. For many of you, you could probably have preached that sermon quite easily. <laughs> There's nothing radically new there for you. But we need to remind ourselves of truth. Listen every day. Remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of what Christ has done for you and allow God's word, allow his spirit to just excite you once again to a place of thanksgiving and praise. Because without Jesus, without him shedding his blood, without his sacrifice, we have no hope. But of course, we need to be telling others. We need to be pushing it out there. We need to be letting our friends, our families, we need our nation and our city to hear the wonderful news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do that on one-to-one -one very often. And we do it in larger settings, I'm sure, as well. But ultimately, I pray, Father, send your spirit. Father, pour out your spirit in these days. Lord, we need you to move. Father, we pray that you'd open heaven, Lord God, and Lord, in your mercy, Lord, do not forget about us here in Chester. Lord, so many people have no clue, no idea. Lord, they never even think of praying or, or giving you the honor that you deserve. And Father, I ask now that that would change. Begin with us, Lord God. 
begin with your people, Lord. May we be passionate for you above everything else. So, Lord, what we need to work in our hearts, Lord, you have permission. Why not just quietly say to the Lord, Lord, I give you permission for your spirit to come and just do fresh work in my heart. With his own forgiveness there, just say sorry to the Lord now. With his own repentance, just confess your sins to him. Tell that he will forgive you. And then just receive, receive his love, receive his spirit. Allow him to change you. Thank you, Dave.